Hi, welcome to another episode of 90 Minutes of Wisdom, a channel dedicated to helping you expand your knowledge and develop a more successful and peaceful mind. My guest today is the president of Audio Z, a prestigious music studio located in the Stock Exchange Tower here in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He's also the president of Web Cargo, which is a service that allows large files to be transferred over the internet at lightning speeds. He's a longtime friend and a very wise and humble man. Welcome, Serge Laforêt. Welcome, Serge. Thanks, Andrew. You're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure to see you again, as usual. <laughs> you are the wise man, <laughs> full of wisdom. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. Just a little bit here and there that I take. I learned from so many uh, wonderful people like you. Um, so uh, where to begin, sir? Uh, I know we were talking a little bit about maybe we can address just kind of a little bit about the situation and then move on from there, seeing how we're still in this uh, lockdown, isolation and the, that whole uh, the whole deal. So um, how is how has everything been for you? Well, it's been, uh, I mean, kind of, of course, we are on a, unprecedented times, uh, as everybody knows. I was talking with an old friend of mine who's 91 years old in England the other day, and I said, uh, hey, have you ever experienced anything like that in your lifetime? She said, no, never. She said, uh, I remember my mother talking about the Spanish flu and telling me children were dying in her classroom and uh, she had lost many friends. You said, I remember that, but in the 91 years she lived, she had never seen anything like that. So it is true that this is very unique right now. There, it creates lots of uh, polarizations. You know, some people think it should be like this, should be like that. Some people even think it's some kind of conspiracy. I have a friend from Toronto the other day to send me a video that was uh, quite disturbing and quite crazy. It is also a very interesting moment to uh, reassess how we do things. And I think it will leave a, a lasting imprint on the way we're doing business in many areas. Like this whole idea of having people uh, in office, in offices all the world, over the world when they can actually maybe work from their house, I think this will remain. Of course, people will return to offices, uh, obviously, but maybe people will realize, do we really need eight floors in this building, or we could maybe do it two and have the rest of the people working from home? So I think they were, the real estate sector will be uh, will have to take a step back and reinvent and figure out how what's going to happen with their with their space right now uh the uh at the studio because we're part of the essential because we do advertising as a or core business is advertising we continue to operate with a minimum of uh, employees uh we uh created the some kind of booth that we manufacture for actors who so brought it to their house to um, so they could record because the problem with sound is not uh, is the echo to remove noise from a recording today with all the technology we have if there's a noise of uh, air conditioning or a constant noise it's quite easy but if you have lots of echo in a room uh, this is a challenge. So uh, we created those uh, seven feet tall panels that actors can surround themselves with. And uh, the microphone being in the middle of that with a table and we, we could achieve wonderful quality. So we built quite a few of those. We bought a bunch of microphones. Uh, so that's been one of, and then most of the engineer in the studio moved the studio in their house so they could remotely connect to one of those actors that were set up in their house and record them while we remotely, uh, uh connect to, uh, clients. Uh, nice. And, and, and what have you been doing? Have you been doing some voiceovers for some TV shows and movies or? 
Yeah, we, we've done. Uh, yeah, we've done the uh, ADR uh, with an American actors for uh, an anime in uh, London. Uh, I didn't know him personally, but yeah, Rob Delaney is supposed to be quite a well-known actor. And uh, we did that, and it was kind of funny because when he walked in the studio, it was uh, maybe end of February, beginning of March, and I extend my hand to shake his hand. He said, well, I think this time this is not fake news. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, I think we'd better not, uh, not yeah. do so that. So uh, we keep on doing that kind of stuff. So that kept going. We also do lots of audio books. We work for Audible extensively. We've recorded uh, more than 100, maybe 125 books over the last two years. Uh, so that we continued because Audible, Amazon, I'm, I was very surprised how concerned they are about the safety of their employees. That may be against what some people think, but uh, they were very, very, very concerned that we do not do any recordings in the studio. So that pushed us to uh, do even more uh, effort to set up people remotely. remotely. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that's cool. That's that's fantastic. I know that uh, doing an audio book is uh, is long and painstaking uh, to do. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it's a it, it's a it's quite a job because uh, you know not only there is the, the physical recording of the book, there is also the editing, and there's the QC, you know, the quality control, because there's always a few words that slip by or a few lines that get struck along the way without anybody noticing. So we have to uh, do uh, extensive quality control in the book. After that, there's the, the, rhythm, the rhythm of the narration that can sometimes, you know, yes. vary over time that has to be kept at a very good pace. So it, it's much more involved than, uh, than it looks like, but I'm a big fan of audiobooks. I've been a fan for years. And years of podcasts and audiobooks. I've always had a book in my phone. I'm always listening. To well, you know, it was it was you that started me on audiobooks. Actually, it was autobiography of a yogi, and that was oh, that's true. That's that true. was like, and then you you had suggested that to me, and I had never listened to an audiobook before, and and that was such a wonderful one. And I started with that, and then I was doing at the time I was doing a lot of driving, so I continued and I did. Wow, well, I know that in the first year I did 84 books in a row wow. you know? wow. <laughs> it was just and some of them i listened to um you know twice or three times and just uh just so amazing so i would go to like you know often i'd go to ottawa so i'd drive two hours there and two hours back and then you know i'd spend another you know five six hours on the road so i'd be like be able to do full books right you know my trip to ottawa and back uh, full yeah, book yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it's wonderful it's absolutely wonderful but i i was saying that i know it's so painstaking because I did um, my book in audio, uh, made into an audio book with a friend. Yeah. So he was doing the voiceover and wow. And he's an amazing uh, musician, very talented guy. Uh, his name is Bruno. And we thought, oh my God, all the different things. Like, so if you record like one day to the next, you don't realize how much the timber of your voice changes. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And then this, the microphone could be, you think at the same distance, but it sounds very different uh, yeah. from one day to the next. And then, it's, as you said, the rhythm of the pace, so you might have a little bit more energy. Uh, so yeah. that's also different. It, it, your voice is in a different key, you know? Yeah. So, that, so it does it, it's so difficult. So we did, um, I, I thought, in my, the, the book that I wrote, it was, it's a very short book, you know? It's, it's yeah. uh, designed to be read in 30 minutes. It's not a full book. So I can only imagine the challenges that come with, uh, we th I thought we'd bang it out in, in like two days of eight hours. And it took, oh my God, it took about eight days of eight hours to, to do yeah. it. Wow. <laughs> no, it is the the very first audio book I did, uh, we did with a friend of mine. He has a beautiful voice. He's uh, an English guy. So he had a beautiful accent and all that. But that was our first book, and it was a 15-hour book. I mean, Andrew, we must, we must have spent about 450 hours on it. It was like, ridiculous you know and i of course it was a labor of love it was a very uh it was a interesting story because it was a story of a survivor of the holocaust 
that was still alive in Montreal. I just happened to be at his uh, at his cottage in the Eastern Townships, and uh, and Charlotte was there, and I took a picture of her and him together, and that ended up being the picture being on the back cover of the book, because uh, a few because she basically this friend. Uh, Leon Berger interviewed her for over many, many years. That's why it's called Lunching with Charlotte, because he he would go uh, visit her and have lunch, and she will uh, tell him uh, the story about the ordeal she went through uh, during the Nazi occupation with her family. And uh, incredible woman. And then now with Black Lives Matters, which is probably one of the most significant events that is happening right now. It looks like hopefully it's going to help and change this situation right now where we still live in a world dominated by whites and uh, black people still have a, such a hard time to make it. Yeah, there's so many things that, that I don't understand uh, at all. I don't understand war. I don't understand poverty when there's enough uh, or, or hunger, when there's enough food to feed the whole world. Why are people going starving? I don't understand how countries don't have universal health care, how you can not have insurance so they leave you to die on the side of the road. It makes no sense to me, the cruelty. And, um, you know, we've just not evolved as a society uh, to a certain level. And hopefully this is the... Um, you know, the, the kick in the pants that we need to evolve further. And the way I see things is like, we're all light beings, you know, what does it matter? Um, the shell that you're in, you know, man, woman, whatever race, it's so, um, it's so low level. I mean, to, to, to judge or somebody or to base somebody or treat somebody a certain way because of a certain, uh, physical aspect is, uh, beyond me it's beyond me that that we're still so in some ways we're so advanced as a society techno uh, the technology and then other ways in uh, ethically morally uh, we're, we're just so behind it, it's a fear you know it's a fear reaction and people are afraid of what they don't know and uh, i think it's normal for the survival of the species we've seen over the millions of years that people animals we are we have to get conditioned by what scares us in order to protect ourselves so it's kind of a reaction you know we we see uh, an animal and we get bitten then after that every time we're close to the similar animal we kind of scare and run away to survival instinct and people get uh, conditioned the same way by the media by uh, those people are bad, those people are good, and, and it creates the same kind of conditioning on people. And then they are scared unconsciously of, uh, of everything. And I think the pandemic is another good example. Uh, the level of anxiety it created on very, very young people, not only old, there is, I'm not saying it's good or bad, there's just a level of uh, of stress and anxiety. Uh, you probably have maybe have listened to some comments by David Katz, who's an American doctor that gives a kind of a perspective on the pandemic. I think it was very refreshing to hear his point of view. Uh, he was basically saying in a nutshell that instead of doing a horizontal lockdown, we should have done a vertical lockdown, which means we focus on the people that needs to be protected. It's easier said than done, but Lots of energy should have been put on the long-term center for all people because those people are definitely at risk. But to have locked the whole society, it's unsustainable in a long time. And now we're kind of seeing the results of that. People get impatience. And it's, it's very difficult to imagine that we could lock down people for two, three, four years because vaccines take it takes years to be. Uh, yeah, they're they're all, like you hear. I hear things on the news, and they're saying like, "Well, a vaccine should could be ready by the end of the year, early next year." Uh, and then other people are like, "You know what? Maybe a vaccine, as you said, could take four to five years." And other people are saying, "Well, maybe a vaccine is just even not possible." You know. So yes. well, AIDS. They've been working on it for thirty years. You know. Yeah. Well, that's it, right? That's it. So there are certain things that you know, it, it's it's hope, but 
you know, I, I don't know, but I wanted to ask you your perspective. How do you, um, cause as you said before with fear, right, it's, ne it's never good to have fear-based decisions, fear-based emotions, it leads to bad things instead of love-based. And yeah. so it's a, always a fine line to try to say, like, so I take it very seriously. If I go to visit someone, I, I wear the mask. If I go to a grocery store, I wear my mask. I try to isolate as much as possible. And how do you walk that line where you say it's like healthy precaution, but not to spread fear or to live in fear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's a difficult uh, question because the reality, depending on the, who we are talking to, some people in order to react to some recommendation will need to be pushed a little bit harder than others. Some people will be very rational and understand and say, okay, this is a serious situation, so we should protect older people and people that are at risk. According again to David Katz, he said, the testing should be done to get a sample, not to test 300 million people. It's impossible. But you can test 50,000 in a couple of days. And then you can draw a conclusion if you do real random samples where you test young, old, middle age. After 50 or 100,000, you can have a, a picture. Okay, people with that kind of uh, condition, they are really at risk. Those people are really not at risk. Yeah, and, and if you don't want to have any and you risk at all, then you say, okay, let's lock everybody up for the next 20 years and then the virus will, well, we know it makes no sense. You know, as you said, there's a lot of people that are just asymptomatic. So they, 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 yeah. they, they, might, they don't even know they have it, right? So then those people, yeah. they go along and that's what makes it so dangerous. So they yeah. were saying to make it like a less dangerous one is something that you get it and you just die right away. Then the virus is gone, but you get it. You don't yeah, even yeah. know you have it. Then you're going around and meeting people and you feel fine. And then you're, they're contracting it. And some of them, those people yeah. aren't, aren't fine. So, you know, it becomes, um, it, it definitely becomes, you know, a, a very, a very big challenge. But as you said, you know, like what can we, at least we have the technology, like, like this zoom call, as you said about doing these recordings, very intelligent, the way you did, you set up these booths. It's like, how do we move forward? You know, this is the current situation. Yeah. I always like to yeah, look, yeah. look at things like that, right? Say, so, you know what, let's, let's see where we are right now and where mm -hmm. we should go in the future. You know, not get too hung up on, you know, oh, this could have, should have happened or did, whatever. We are where we are, you know. And I think yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's the right ways to, to move forward. There's no easy answer to how people should behave. I finished another book, uh, How to Survive a Pandemic, uh, by Michael Greger, you know, the doctor that wrote How Not to Die. Yeah, he's usually quite light. Hearted and uh, and he has good humor about all the topics he uh, brings on, but this one is a little dark. It's a little dark. What I found very interesting about this book, and maybe uh, I'm very ignorant, and maybe I was the only one didn't realizing that, but it seems that viruses, those pandemics, comes from the uh, industrial raising of chicken. And uh, and uh, pork, uh, hogs, uh, and this is within those animals that the mutation of the virus happen, and eventually will get transmissible to human. It's a very interesting aspect of uh, the virus genesis that I didn't know. So uh, we all know it comes from wet market as well, like in uh, Asia, yeah. where yeah. they have the, well, the this, bats. That's what they were explaining. They were explaining that like um, a bat could have a virus, and then like a pig, and a chicken, and a snake, and that's different. Like their particular virus is not transmittable to humans, but when you put them together, and they have these viruses, those viruses somehow mutate together, and then become humans become susceptible to it. Yeah. So it's really, again, all of it, I keep seeing the same signs is about protecting the environment. Like it's unnatural to jam all these in close confinement 
these animals that are from different regions, like a bat lives in a cave and, you know, a snake is whatever in a forest or a jungle or something, and you're putting them all in close proximity. This is a problem, uh, you know, not treating the environment correctly is a problem. The root of the problem, I have to say, okay, what is the root of the problem and how do we address that? And I think that that's a lot of comes down to the environment and, yeah. you know, respecting nature, respecting, you know, this thing that we, we've, we, humanity is lost it's all about uh, dominating nature you know instead yeah. of living with nature yeah. you know the chickens for instance they put uh, 50,000 100,000 together you know stack on top of one another they uh, feed them with antibiotic because they're so stressed and so sick that they would die so they give them all sorts of antibiotics they they treat them in a horrible way they, i mean it's just Unbelievable! I didn't know any of that. It's just unbelievable. And uh, because the uh, agriculture, the meat industry in the U.S. is self-regulated, which is kind of like hilarious when you think about it. So they say, oh, well, we had a farm with chickens were infected. We uh, killed, you know, 20 million chickens. But the way we can grow them so fast and so fat, uh, we still make more money with this technique. But now, when you take the social impact of all the people that get sick from uh, eating those uh, and uh, all the pandemics that uh, influenza and all that, the social cost is way, 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 way higher of when they focus only on their industry. So uh, the, that's, uh, that's another reality that is very sad. Now, the the dark side of the book is saying the virus we have right now is pretty uh, benign. But he said if it was an H1N5, for instance, it could be like 50, 60% of the people that would die. Mm, that's so it right. Could eradicate, it could eradicate like a billion, a billion and a half. That's right. Because look, and that it's very, I, I, as you said, it's dark, but the thing is, it's, it's I understand because we had, you know, H1N1, right? And we had uh, these things, okay, COVID-19, 19 strain or whatever, right? And I've seen documentary uh, before, they're talking about the, the Arctic and how, um, you know, the ice is all melting. Yep. And they're saying that there's some viruses that are trapped for millions of years in this ice and when because again comes down to the environment and abuse of the environment because there are the, the polar ice caps are melting that they could release these pathogens that are so deadly because we have no immunity to something that's you know millions of years old this was a, a while ago um and that's it it's not to say like okay we're, we're out of the woods if we get through this we're out of the woods and this is okay and it's another hundred years I don't think so. If we don't start changing a lot of things very rapidly, why wouldn't there be another one, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're even surprised that we didn't have uh, a more severe one. I mean, there's been some very, very severe pandemics that happened over the last 50 years that were quenched at the beginning and the, like Ebola or like very, very deadly things. But it, it will happen. Besides, there are so many documentaries and books, the China study, Forks Over Knives, Game Changers on Netflix, so many things. It's, it's proven that over and over and over, our teeth aren't made for eating meat, our digestive system is for plants, with, you know, and it's just, it's just obvious, but we don't change. Now I'm guilty of it too. Like I, I, I try to eat as like little meat as possible, but I still eat meat, but I know that I plan for... I've gone vegan several times, but I haven't had, you know, lasted a month, two months, and then I go back and something like that. But I, I know I'm going to go 100% vegan. It's, it's just it's just the right way to, to live. Well, but I, I, you know, I don't think it's necessary to go maybe to the extreme, but at least the fact that you're conscious and you reduce your meat consumption is already wonderful. And if, uh, I mean, only 10%, if the humanity would, Tomorrow, can consume ten percent less meat. It would be it would already have an incredible impact on the environment and on the and on those creatures. For me, you know, for me, it's it's difficult to understand how people can have a cat, can have a dog, 
you know, and when this animal passed away, they all, it's almost as they lose a child or anything. But at the same time, they have no problem seeing animals that are killed in a very barbarian way. We're a very strange species, you know, when you think about it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Not to think there is a sensibility or there is some... Uh, uh, that they're not sensitive uh, Of course. Beings. Well, they show that, I mean, even... Even plants, when you rip out a plant, the plant next to it realizes that that plant, its plant friend or neighbor has just been ripped yeah. out and reacts to it, right? And there was a show called Alone. I don't know if you ever saw this. Um, and what it is, it's kind of like survivor type show. Where these guys, they go in the, this season, um, they're in the Arctic and they have to survive for 100 days. So they have to like, and they got nothing, right? So they have a bow and arrow and, and some very basic supplies and they have to find all their own fish and, you know, hunt the animals. And every time they trapped and killed an animal, um, the majority of the people, they, they, they cry because they capture this animal. Like, oh, I got this rabbit. And they look and then they, they, they're like, and then they, they always pray. They say, uh, thank you for giving your life to me. Uh, and they feel this connection, which is not this connection that you have or understanding when you're at a grocery store and you're just picking out this thing. You have no, it does not go together. They even do it on purpose, right? They try to um, disassociate you as much as possible from yeah. Yeah, the animal. Or the, <laughs> that, that yeah, yeah. Right? yeah it, it's always ironic when you look, you know, at the grocery store, you know, everything when you buy milk or you buy uh you have the smiling cow on the <laughs> yeah you know it's uh as if they are smiling you know it's a way to accept again the unacceptable and to create uh, a smoke screen in front of this reality you know i, I always wonder just some out there thinking but you know there was um this time you know thousands of years ago where humans were the same as uh every other animal you know they were just mm -hmm. another right whether it was a uh, cro-magnon man or neanderthal man and uh you know homo erectus this kind of time there was just a it was just another they, they lived the same as a, the same fighting chance as a lion as a deer they kind of did their thing right and then over time it became like this uh dominance and then it became supreme dominance right like, yeah, yeah. put animals in a zoo eat these ones kill off all the wolves whatever whatever they they might do and then i think well you know what if it was something else like what if it was like a penguin that like got developed right or another like right like uh, a rabbit that developed the super consciousness instead of <laughs> instead of a human right like yeah. I, I don't know it's it's just it's strange to see and then the abuse like you know they say what with um absolute power comes absolute corruption and this is what you see i mean because you can dominate this thing doesn't mean you should dominate this thing mm -hmm. and i wonder what do you think 10 years 50 years 100 years will they be saying about how we live now in 2000 you know 20 and all the mistakes that we're not seeing um you know that, that we're blinded to right yeah well as we know history repeat itself over and over and over there there are no uh well there is an evolution obviously when we look uh, we live nonetheless in a safer society there are less people being killed every year than before and there's a progression even though we are more acutely aware of all the wars and all the but overall, if we compare to what happened in the past, we're a little more civilized somehow. But that being said, uh, that brings me to a short story. I was doing hiking with a friend one day, and uh, we saw a wrapper, you know, wrapping a chocolate bar, wrapping on the, in the forest. And I said, oh, a trace of civilization. And he said, or a lack of civilization. Mm. And I thought that was pretty interesting to how you can see the same thing with opposite value. So uh, I'm, a, I'm positive, you know, uh, I have a positive attitude towards life. Otherwise, you know, what would be the point you know, to, uh, to live if we, we have such a negative? <laughs> but I think things are going to get better. 
things, if we don't drastically change, if we don't learn from these mistakes and quickly, you know, uh, I was saying the Gaia theory that the earth is a, is a living being, breathing, living being that we're on, that we need to respect. And when we start paying, you know, carbon tax and just, it's okay to destroy this amount of the environment. And this is accept it's unacceptable garbage Island, you know, this Island where all these, Things garbage island. It's I mean it's it's unacceptable. There has to be uh, and the the linear progression, like you said, it's more civilized. Yes, progress is being made. Yes, but not rapidly enough. Did you ever read Conversations with God with Neil Donald Walsh book? No. no, very interesting. Anyways, one of the things talked about is like is just advanced civilizations, universal health care for everyone. There should be basic income for everyone. There should be nobody dying of poverty and nobody dying because they don't have insurance and something happens to them and they we have the cure but they can't afford it and they just die. That's just is unacceptable, you know, unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. So there's just these we have to raise the 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 bar and I think that it's that disassociation um, of 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 you know this fractured kind of perception that I'm me and you're you and what happens here doesn't affect me. What happens there doesn't affect me. And I think that that's also obviously we're seeing it with COVID that at the beginning they said, oh, it's something in, in China. Who cares, right? Who cares? Yeah. Oh, it's spread a little bit in the, in Asia. Who cares? And then, you know, boom. Well, now it's, you know, Montreal. My God, you know, it's, 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 it's horrific. And I think that more people are becoming conscious. You know, there's more and more people that are interested in, meditation introspection and uh doing analysis of their observing their mind and there's so much disinformation about uh, meditation you know it's it's hilarious when you i was talking with you uh, with a very smart man he's a good friend of mine uh, a little bit older than me and uh, i said oh uh, if you don't do meditation you've done that therapy all your life but you've never done meditation he said oh my mind is way 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 too busy to do that kind of thing and uh, it's very funny because it's exactly why you should do meditation and uh, the fact that your mind is busy or not has nothing to do with the value of meditation it's the fact that you are conscious of it that becomes the work it's not to say oh meditation you're sitting there for three hours you haven't had a single thought and you were just like a, a dead body there that has nothing to do with that it's it's just the capacity to observe your own thoughts and your thought process and how you get your hanging to those thoughts your story and all that so that this is good for everybody so uh because there's this often uh People say, oh, uh, you know, meditation is so, re it's good to relax, you know. This is not really the purpose of meditation. And it's, oh, you know, you, you have to stop thinking. Again, this is not really the purpose. But this is the what most people think. So, uh, and because of that, lots of people don't want to do it because they say, oh, well, you know, I'm very, very busy. My mind is, I'm thinking of millions of things all the time. So meditation is not my cup of tea. Which is completely wrong. On the contrary, it would be yes. Perfect. The person that needs it the most is is yeah. that person that has the most. I can't do it because I have too many thoughts. Well, you're the person that actually needs to meditate the most, right? Yeah, exactly. And that would be interesting to understand why you have so many thoughts. So the uh, so I think there's a movement that uh, an irreversible movement towards this direction where more and more people are interested by different aspects of meditation. There's so many apps now. Yes, guided meditations, this yeah. exactly that help you. And it's I look at Headspace, you know, they became, you know, I don't know, they make a hundred million dollars a year now. It's a huge thing. It's a beautiful apps I like uh so they, and there are many, you know, there tens person app here with Dan Harris, which I think he's doing uh, with his podcast. He's doing a great work, you know, to bring also some guests that are kind of stars in this world of meditation. Jack Cornfield, uh, Epstein, and uh, all those famous people that have been doing it for so many years, and have uh, written so many books, and they've had people had so many retreats and so they're really really knowledgeable about what they're talking about 
to me, this is what's going to save the world. It's a conspiracy of love, a conspiracy of compassion. This is what's going to save the world. You know, in 1969, when uh, John Lennon was doing his bedding with his wife at the Queen Elizabeth, journalists asked him, because his whole things, he wanted to stop the Vietnam War. And, uh, and he was very serious about it. He was doing his bit as an artist. And uh, because he had the large tribune, people would listen to him. And a journalist asked him, he said, well, the problem, we have to change the government. And gentleman said, you want to change the government for what? For another government? So it's always going to be the same. He says, the people that can do something, it's not the government. When I was much younger, maybe I was in early, maybe I was 19 or 20 years old. I remember I was living in a building downtown. And I thought it was quite beautiful. There was this man that was maybe 35 years old. And he told me one day in the elevator, he said, you know, my dream in my life was to have a Mercedes Benz. So this is my dream. That was the dream of my life. So he said, now I bought one. He had the smallest bands of it. And, he, and I kept seeing him, you know, weeks after weeks, and he was still in a state of happiness, you know, and grace because he had this car. And I was thinking, my God, you know, I envy him, you know, if my life could be so simple you know, as having a car and then I'm happy. And uh, I, because I realized very early on in my life that material possession never made me happy. Right. Well, they say, that's I couldn't agree more. They say one thing is they say it's 21 days is usually the maximum, no matter what you get. So you get the new Mercedes. Twenty one after twenty one days, you start winding down, and now what else can I buy? What else is going to be? Yeah. So one is is it's they say uh, Tony Robbins says um, happiness is progress. That that's the only way to be happy is to c- continuously progressing. So whether it's meditating, progressing internally, progressing in the outer world, developing more, building more, creating more. This is what yeah. he 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 just uh, says is um, is the way. To, to to be happy. And I think, you know, what you're saying too is to look, I completely believe in that, to look inside. And when you said about um, John Lennon in 1742 uh, room and all that stuff, yeah. and he was 100% uh, correct, is that you're always going to look outside. You're going to say, people say, oh, it's, it's my government's fault. It's my, it's too much taxes. It's my boss is an idiot. Da, 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 this, my wife. You blame external. It's nothing. It, everything is internal, right? Everything's internal. It's nobody's fault. But Andrew, look at all those people that blame all their life what happened to them when they were five years old, what <laughs> happened to them when they were seven years old. Oh, my mother was like that. Oh, I would have become, a, I don't know, an engineer, but my mother wanted me to be a priest. So I became a priest and I've been unhappy all my life or whatever nonsense. And uh, I look at my father. You know, there were 15 children. My mother, there were 15 children. So, of course, raised, you know, Lac Saint-Jean on farms, uh, very, very poor and all that. And when you'd go to grade three, you'd be lucky. And, uh, And my father, his father, my grandfather, wanted, could only afford one son to go to university. And he picked up his brother. And he was really upset about that because my father would have liked to go to university and his brother was not interested to go to university but he eventually is the only one that went but my father until he died hated his father and could never forgive him the fact but when you think about that he could have gone back to school when he was 22 25 years old you know there was no problem with that but he preferred all his life to nourish to put the blame on his father instead of saying, oh, I could have done it. I'm the one that did. I, I decided to become an alcoholic instead, and, and I became a loser instead of taking my life into my hands. And it's very, very sad when you think this kind of situation follows you all your life. Yes, instead, yes. at one point, you put the foot down and you say, okay, now I'm an adult. I got to do something. Of course, I'm going to try. 
Exactly. But I think that, um, you know, in, I wrote this in my book is that, you know, the difference between a guy who meditates 30, 40 years and, and develops himself super high, the biggest difference between him and the average person is the capacity for forgiveness, you know, yeah. and this is huge. So to forgive yourself and forgive other people immediately. So, so and forgiving yourself can be very, very difficult, sometimes more difficult than forgiving somebody else. But you need to forgive them and move on. When you hold this thing, it's such a poison, right? They, 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 the famous quote, they said, you know, holding a grudge is like drinking the poison and expecting the other person to feel the effects of the poison, right? Be, you know, forgive yourself, forgive others, and then gratitude, be grateful for everything you have, right? These are so important. And then make love-based decisions. It's kind of like all kind of goes together. And I wanted to ask you, though, on your... I mean, you're a very um, humble and very, very wise person, but you're, you're also very, you I mean, you're very successful as well. So how do you, like, how does, how do you manage that, um, you know, mentally, or how does that work together? How do you balance that? Oh, well, you know, uh, successful is a big word, you know, <laughs> it's, it's very relative, you know. So, uh, I mean, I'm a, uh, considering where I started from, I think I did pretty well. I'm I'm quite satisfied with my life, and I still see the many many more things to do and many more uh, challenge to take up. Get out of your comfort zone every day is uh, is is very very important. And the more comfortable you are, the more difficult it becomes to get out your comfort zone because you don't have to have the chance to meet very inspiring people and uh like i've uh, i've climbed mountains a few mountains in my life i would have never done it on my own but i had those friends that say oh good we're gonna go climb the mountain you want to come along and i said oh sure so i did the grand paradiso i did the mont blanc we went in patagonia and all that and the grand paradiso was uh quite an experience it's uh 4600 meters and it's uh there are some very, very difficult paths in there that uh, challenge your sense of fear. You know, I'm not very brave, you know, with heights. And this friend I was going with is older than me and in uh, incredible shape. Uh, he's another person that is very, very comfortable and has been extremely successful in life. But he still finds pleasure to go out of his way and to do like very adventurous things just to to force himself to reinvent himself you know to go back to your questions i don't think i'm particularly successful compared to lots of people but yeah it's true from the background i had you know considering my father left us when i was five years old and my mother was schizophrenic and all that i mean uh, she was left with three boys on her own uh, with no education whatsoever to have to fight to feed them and all that. This situation that my parents created and this hard time may have given me the drive to do what I've been doing. So in a sense, they've been helping me in that sense. That's a very so, that's a very positive way. I love that. That's that's wisdom. That's a positive way to look at it. Those hardships gave you the strength to make you the man you are today. But that's a very positive way. That that's a very nice, it's a beautiful way to look at it, right? As you say, other people, and I would say, as against the odds, you know, a lot of other people would have held this, uh, you know, this pain, unfortunately, for their life, and may use this as an excuse, which in a certain ways almost a bit valid of an excuse to say, "Well, I had." Well, you know. Well, when I was, uh, you know, when I was maybe eight or nine years old, I remember I had an uncle that was kind of an idol because he had been a successful man in his own rights, starting against from truly nothing. And I remember one day, I don't remember why he was saying that, but he said, oh, it's like the uh, driver with the... Uh, you know, with the dent in his car, you know. And he said, Ah, oh, you know, it's this idiot, you know, that hit me and I was not responsible at all and all that. But he said, and then you see him a week later, he has another dent and he has another story of how this other person made the problem for him when he was completely innocent. 
He said, when it's been three or five times, he's telling you that over six months, and then you, un- you understand he's just a bad driver, you know. Yes, And yes. Uh, you don't believe him anymore. You understand that he's just transferring the blame instead of looking at him as, okay, I'm, I'm a bad driver. I have to do something about it. It's He's just blaming every time there's an un- incredible circumstance that of course. created the problem but the, you know the thing is, is it's his energetic field right it's his and his yeah, thoughts yeah. and his energetic field is attracting these people and you know he probably wasn't there when the guy banged him but he's then he, he puts so much focus and so much anger and so much the universe says you know we'll send another car to, to hit him again because he hasn't learned anything and he keeps and then by telling the story and getting some kind of weird satisfaction out of saying look look how it perpetuates. It creates the reality yeah. more and more in this field. Yeah. So that's something I, I you know, I t- I'm always um, trying every day to figure out more and more is how to develop that that field around me um, to attract all the good things into my life, all the positive experiences. And you know, it's nothing as you said was perfect, but how did you know? I want that in my field so that um, there was a guy. I'll tell you one quick story. There was a guy that always had the worst luck. Okay. And it was, so it was my, you know, I was working with a friend of mine and him, um, we'll call him Alex. Okay. It's not his name. We'll call him Alex. Okay. So there is my friend and Alex and every time, so we would decide where we would go for lunch. And every time Alex decided where we'd go for lunch, it was the worst lunch ever. It could be this, our favorite restaurant, but you know, they, they ran out of the food. It was cold. It was whatever. And we started realizing that, my God, like this guy has a perfect record of picking the wrong place. Every time he picks. So we made an agreement. We said, okay, we'll wait till he will say, where do you want to go? And we'll let him talk first. And whatever he says, we will say, no, we don't, we're not in the mood for that, no matter what it is. Right. And so then we started that and that worked really, really well. We started going to the restaurants and having positive experiences. And one day, um, this, we were in, uh, we're in Toronto. I think, yeah, we were in Toronto and for a business thing. And the three of us are walking and this truck goes by this with a tar. Uh, you know, like hot tar to redo a driveway and hits a bump. And this this one drop of tar flies up in the air and it lands right on that guy's shoe. And he's just bragging how he has a brand new, beautiful suede shoe, beige shoe. And it, this one drop and just spoils his whole shoe with tar. Right? And I think, you know, in one way, it's awful being around him because of this thing. But in another way, it's like when you're with somebody that, you know, that, that it was sometimes when you go in nature, there's a mosquitoes love to bite one person. So yeah. They never bite you because it's, it attracts all the negativity. This guy's like having a, a lightning pole, you know, that it'll always strike him. <laughs> so you're yeah, safe yeah. You know, around yeah, him. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so funny, but it's like, it's, it's not like one time it happened. It's like over and over and over. So it doesn't matter what the person says with their mouth. I know what they're thinking because yeah, of their yeah. experience, right? That's it. Yeah. So does it, I don't have to say to somebody, tell me what it is and try to figure them out. Just tell me what happens in their life experience, what they're surrounded with, who they're surrounded with. And I already know what's in their, their, their thoughts. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I remember, you know, when I was uh, 15 years old, Marcel Marceau, you know, the famous French mind, came to Montreal he was doing a few uh, shows in Montreal, but he was also giving a conference in a college, ANSIC uh, CJEP uh, in Montreal. And uh, for some reason, I don't know why, I ended up going to the conference. It was fascinating because he started this conference saying, well, he says, mime, usually they don't talk. So he said, it's a little bit unusual for me to give a conference, but he said, anyway. So he started his conference like that, and then he showed the uh, the walk, uh, the moonwalk that uh, Michael Jackson learned afterwards he was doing it, you know. And uh, and at one point he looked at us, he said, you know, there are people that will tell you in life, sir, I am very honest. I'm a very, very honest person. He said, I'm going to tell you something. Those are the people you should be worried about. <laughs> and I thought it was very... Uh, Funny out of the blue, he said that. But then it stayed with me all my life. And I realized that often when some some people say something too strong, it often 
exactly the opposite of what they think inside. Yeah. They're trying to convince you. Exactly. Because, because they're worried that, because they know there's dishonest, so they're trying to sell you, right? They're trying to sell you. It's like when somebody talks too much, you know, they're lying. Right? You know, I was saying before that I, buying thing never made me happy. But I should, I should correct that a little bit when it was for me. But every time I bought something that was to create something for, for the, for a community or for a company, I never had any issue. So, uh, when in a studio we need to buy new equipment because you want to achieve certain results or we need that to serve the cl our clients better, I've never had any problem with that. I was more sensitive to that when I was younger because I was so poor that if I needed to buy a new tape recorder, it was a big deal. And then when I would get it after a few days, it would usually take 24 hours and I would realize, well, maybe I don't really need it. You know, it was a mistake to buy it. And after that, I started to be, try to be very conscious and take lots of time before I make buying decisions and trying to reflect what's the motivation? Why do I need this? Why do I want to acquire that? Why? And then eventually it's helping to make, I guess, more informed decisions instead of being very impulsive. I mean, because there is a saying that says um, when you own a lot of objects, the, the objects start owning you, right? And oh, yeah. I, I know I've seen that with, um, you know, people that I know that were, you know, quite uh, you know, wealthy and they, you know, they bought a boat and they bought a, a country house and they bought that. And then it's just like, so it's such a headache, you know, there's a problem with the boat, this, this, you're paying all this money for docking it. And then you have this property and you have to pay somebody and there's problems with that. And then it's like, well, do I, you know, I, I'm, I'm big into, you know, uh, minimalism not that I have the choice yeah. like I have the, the finances to be anything but but I'm into I buy nice things very few that's my key yeah. I have a very nice TV I, I love my car I love my speakers Sonos right and uh, you know everything yeah, yeah. I have I, I have very few of but very high quality and that's that's what I do and I don't like to buy it I'm not a shopper I'm not a consumer I don't like to buy anything if it's if it's needless because then you have to take care of it and, and it's just a headache it's a headache. It? It's just become a, a extra weight, extra yeah. baggage. Yeah, and it, just to what you said before, um, when they did this experiment and they gave somebody $5, $10, $20, and they said, go $5, go and buy something, come back, and they fill out a form, $10, $20. And then they said, okay, now take that same $5, but you have to spend it on somebody else. $5, $10, $20. So once the person went and they went and uh, bought somebody some coffee from Starbucks with the $5, $10, some little trinket, $20, some little jewelry for somebody. And they came back and they made them fill out a bunch of uh, a little short survey. And all of them that bought whatever they bought for themselves felt no difference. Do you feel happier? No. Yeah, you know that we gave you this $5, $10, $20, when you, whatever you bought, how did it make you feel? Neutral, zero, nothing. But whenever, even if they spend $5 for somebody else, they felt happier. Yeah. And this is an amazing thing. It's like giving gifts and when, when at Christmas or whatever. Whatever I receive, it's, it's, it's great. And I'm a very generous family. It's never even close to when I get that perfect gift for that person and watching them open it and their face going, oh, my God, it's the perfect gift. That's, that's yeah. you, you can't top that, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, the, uh, Mathieu Ricard, that you probably know, the Buddhist monk, the French Buddhist monk. I don't know if you know him, Mathieu Ricard. He's a very interesting man. He was, uh, his father was a very uh, famous uh, philosopher, French philosopher, uh, Jean-François Revel. And, uh, and Mathieu Ricard was a, uh, uh, did a PhD, I believe, in molecular biology and he was doing research at the Pasteur Institute in France. So very, very high level for uh, several years. And one day he decided he would become a monk and he went to Tibet and uh, he became the uh, translator for the uh, Dalai Lama. Wow. And uh, he does conference and he's written several books and uh, he is a very, very wise man and uh, extremely smart and very, very rigorous. When he writes, it's very, very, very well written. And uh, so his books are very interesting on the on how to see 
the world in, uh, in one of it. He comes to Quebec about once uh, every year or two to give a conference, to give a talk. And he is a fascinating man. And he said, the uh, last time I saw him, he said, I did a meditation in my little place I have in Nepal or wherever he is. And he said, for two hours, I tried to imagine what could I have more to be happier. And he said, after two hours, I realized I had everything. I don't need anything else. So that's why I'm so positive about the future of the world, because I, I think humanity as a whole is going to get more and more conscious. And we'll probably get better. I hope you're right. Uh, I hope I hope uh, so. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, you know, to try to predict the future is... Uh, yeah. As as we know, is a fallacy. It, it's, it's like for, this, yeah. yes, yeah. It's a stock market. You know, I, I remember one day <laughs> the, the the Hong Kong bank invited me to a conference. I mean, I think I told you that anecdote before. It was about investment. This super specialist, you know, about stock market and international finance was giving this incredible talk. And the guy started his talk by saying, if somebody would have told me five years ago that the Canadian dollar would, would be slightly higher than the American dollar, I'd have said, it's completely impossible. It's never going to happen. Well, so this is what we, uh, we see today. So for me, the conference was over. I didn't have any... <laughs> what, are you gonna, what, you hear. what are you going to learn? Yeah. yeah, what am I going to learn from this guy that's yes. going to tell me all sorts of theories and stories? Yes. And you stock know, market's going to go there because of uh, this and that. Yes, and this. they did some experiments, and a lot of people, experts, don't uh, want to hear this with managed managed funds versus unmanaged funds. And they, they took this guy that was not like you know Warren Buffett is amazing. There are some outliers who are fantastic, but they took this guy who was supposedly you know bragging he had made a very big return. And then they took a pig and the pig, they put stocks and the pig would pick stocks. The pig did just as well. Of course, of course. The, this, is, this is well known. Yeah, yeah, but I agree. I agree completely with you. And Is there anything, again, I have so much admiration for you. You're a very humble person. You're very wise. Uh, I cherish your friendship very, very much. Is there anything that you would want to, any last words that you'd want to say to the listener? It's spiritual that I actually said that, that only a conspiracy of love can save the world. And I think on every aspect of what we see in the media right now, Black Lives Matter or the pandemic, the way it's panning out or the unexpected uh, situation that it will bring, it's, it will always be the individual that can make a change. The government can do so much, but it's really, I think people should focus on what they can do today to make a little effort to make something better. And I think this is, uh, you know, when I was uh, living in England in 83, 84, I was uh, very poor at the time. And I, I had a friend that was, uh, you know, uh, he was head of a big law firm over there. And he told me, and he helped me a lot when I was there. And one day I said, well, how can I repay you? You know, what can I do? You know? He said, well, I don't need any money. But he said, there are people that helped me along the way. And he said, what? Well, and they told me when I was trying to repay them, no, no, help somebody else along the way. And said, "This is what, and this is what you will have to do eventually: is help somebody else along your way." And I think it sounds like a cliche, but it is a very, very important things to do. And I've been trying, in my humble way, to do it to the best of my ability. And one thing Steve Jobs said in his commencement speech at Stanford: he said, "I live my day as if I was going to die that night." And it sounds very, again, very cliche and very easy to say, but it took me actually a few years to actually come to this questioning. If I was going, if I knew this morning that I'm going to die tonight, what would I do? What would I do? And one day I, very seriously, I sat and I thought about it. 
And I said, you know what? I would go jogging. <laughs> and that, that's it, you know. So it's very important to do what you like, believe in what you do, and I think try to help as much as possible. I think and try to be more conscious. This is a very, it sounds very uh, easy, but it's it's the work of a lifetime. Awesome, sir. It's awesome. Very, very wise word. Thank you so much. I really appreciate well, your time uh, with this, sirs, and, and, you know, I wish you uh, a successful and peaceful mind. And any, yes. any last, uh, last words you wanted to say? That's it. Okay. Thank you, uh, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you're very nice to have invited me on your podcast. It's very generous of you, but as I say, I'm, I don't deserve much. So uh, you're very kind to have invited me. And I wish you lots of uh, interesting guests and lots of success. Thank you, you so much. Lots of success. <laughs> thank you, you Andrew. Okay, thank Thanks. you. Okay, bye, sir. Thanks, Namaste. Bye.